welcome to Funny Business, a podcast for free thinkers. I'm Robbie Hicks. And I'm Lockie Bradford. And on today's episode, we have the main man, Chris Doe. Uh, I still can't believe this happened, to be honest. What, what a, an amazing guest. What an amazing uh, story and journey. And he dropped some absolute bombs on us, didn't he? Uh, and what they're doing there at the future, big, 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 big goals. Talk about big, hairy, audacious goals. Uh, oh, they're the hairiest. To do live the life they want to live, like that's crazy. Oh, mate, it's absolutely insane. Honestly, I, I've been watching the future, uh, their YouTube content for a, a few years now, and whenever I feel like I'm stuck or if I need a bit of inspiration or whatever, I definitely always, always get into YouTube and and click and see what Chris is thinking about stuff because, honestly, I don't know. It's the it's the whole him Gary V thing. It's like Gary V is the gateway drug, and then you find like you know how you used to with music, you find other bands and artists, you find sort of other people who are doing some cool shit and especially in the design and brand and all that sort of space. So, hey, enjoy. All right. Well, we're live. We're here with Chris Doe and we're so excited, mate. Thank you so much for jumping on the podcast and chewing the fat with us, mate. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, Chris, we like to kick it off with the same question for our guests when they jump on. So for those listening at home, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, my name is Chris Doe. I'm a loud introvert. And in a former life, I was a graphic designer I ran a motion design firm called Blind, and I made commercials and music videos since uh, 1995, so that's 20 plus years. In 2014, I embarked on a crazy adventure with my friend Jose, who invited me to make YouTube content. And though I was reluctant to do it, the, the decision to do that changed my life and my career and my entire company. Today, we're the future, and we have a really big mission, which is to teach a billion people how to make a living doing what they love. It's crazy, man. Like, how, how did you get the vision? Like, one billion is not a small number. You know, you didn't start like, oh, let's let's help a hundred or a thousand. Right. You go, on, let's let's help a billion. Why why did you aim so high, and, and where did that come from? Yes. So uh, prior to to even making those YouTube videos, I taught at a private art school for ten plus years, and it's wonderful to be able to see that spark when somebody somebody makes that connection in their mind, and they and they totally get it. That's what teachers live for. The only problem was I was teaching one to few, and I I was just thinking like, there's got to be more to my life than this. And my wife was challenging me. She, she literally said the same words to me. Is there something more that you want to do with your life? I didn't have the answer at that time, but eventually I stumbled into YouTube. I was thinking at that time, a lot of resistance, tension. Um, I, I didn't want to do it because I was thinking uh, YouTube, that's a place for amateurs, people who haven't done things. I have done things in my life. And I was like, mm, I don't know about this. Just a bunch of wannabes. And uh, would anybody show up? I, I see the kinds of videos that people watch. They're sensational. They're funny. They're entertaining. Uh, they're people with interesting lives. Does, do people really want to tune into YouTube to watch an old guy teach them about design and how to run their business? As it turns out, people do want to see that content. And so fast forward a few years later, I'm, I'm embarking on this and I'm, I'm transitioning my service design company into an education and product-based company. And my management team sitting in the conference room and they're challenging me. They're pushing me. It's like, what kind of company are we? Are we trying to make money or what? Because there are easier ways to make money. And I didn't know how to articulate it. And then it dawned on me and I looked at Ben Burns, who's, who's my chief operating officer. I said, Ben, you have a three-year-old daughter. When she's 18 years old, when she's 18 years old, I hope that we can create a viable alternative to public school. Uh, I'm sorry, private art school. It's too late for us. It's too late for my kids are too old, but for your daughter, we can do this. And when I said that to him, he got real quiet. He got a little teary eyed and he says, I get it. I get what we're trying to do. And so I knew 
that's what I needed to say to people so that they can see the vision that's inside my head. And that night I thought about it. And next morning I came in and I started to write something and I wrote something about trying to teach a billion people how to make money doing what they love. And then later on, I changed it how to make a living because it's not about money. It's about the pursuit of your life. And so each person can identify what that is. And I want to help them to get there. Now, why a billion? Why not just a million or a hundred thousand? Well, at that point in time, I felt like a million would be too close because at that point, we're probably six, 700,000 subscribers already. And I feel like if each one of those people who subscribed to our channel, forget about the people who watched it, but the people who subscribe would raise their hand and say, you know, you can count me as somebody whose life you, life you touched, then the dream would be over. And I really believe in having a big, hairy, audacious goal, something way far out that might take you one, two, three lifetimes to achieve. And so the next round number, as far as I could tell, was a billion. I know that's audacious because that's one in eight people on planet Earth. And I realize how difficult that might be. But I think it's possible. If I can teach the teachers how to teach and show them the way, then it's most definitely possible because you have that multiplier effect. Oh, I love that. Well, how do you spend your day then? Is it is it talking to other designers on your team about what, what you want to sort of come out of the program? Or is it like doing the YouTube videos? Or is it a mix of everything all in one? Very good question. I spend very little time managing my team. I, on, on a day-to-day basis, I have no idea what anybody's doing. We don't see each other. We don't talk that much. We have um, like quarterly goals that we have to hit. We have a plan. So we'll, we'll spend a lot of time strategizing, figuring out what the plan is. And then I let them do what they need to do. From time to time, I'll shoot them an email saying, hey, our numbers are down here. What are we thinking about this? Or I have an idea to do something. Uh, because management is not where I want to spend the rest of my life. I want to spend my time creating and connecting and building community. So I have an idea. It usually sparks from a conversation I have with somebody online or over Zoom or uh, via Twitter or something else in my DMs. And they're pushing back. They're saying, this doesn't work. I don't get it. It doesn't work in this country. Or you've never had a client like this one before. I get that. So I start to think about the answer. And if it's a good answer and they like that answer, it gives me an idea like maybe I need to write a piece of content around this. Maybe I need to turn this into something. So I'm constantly living in that space of iteration. I'm trying ideas out all the time, like uh, like an unknown stand-up comic in a small bar where nobody knows. And I just continue to practice these ideas until eventually something is birthed from that. And that's when I'm like, I think it's time to make this into a course or I'll do a whiteboard session. Or I'll make a full length video on this. And that's what I usually do. So how do, you, how do you test your ideas? And you're looking for things like if I drop this post or I, I got this um, slideshow, I'm going to go, all right, how many saves is to get? How many shares is to get? If it, if it hits, all right, well, that's something. Let's go further down that path. Is that, is that sort of how you're testing your ideas? Yeah, I usually test my ideas out in the public arena where they're not going to be too kind to you. So you say something stupid, they'll tell you that's stupid, man. Or if you say something that it really hits them and I'm looking for an emotional connection. So I will ratchet up the language. I will tweak the language until it becomes something where you're going to respond to me. I want it to be head turning. I want it to be so you can't ignore it. And if I find that, I'll make more content around it and see like, are there legs to this? Is there more to say to this? Do I need to do some research or read a book on this? And, and to make sure I formulate my ideas. Now, oftentimes you're going to ask people, do you fancy yourself a critical thinker? Most people are automatically by default, they're going to say, yeah. But do they really understand what it means to be a critical thinker? You have to critique your thoughts. And what better way to critique your thoughts than to have your thoughts out in the open, not to hold them so close to your chest and keep them trapped inside your brain. I have my thoughts out in the open. People attack the ideas. 
I detach from that. I try to be objective about it. And when a superior argument, when a more uh, trustworthy or, or valid idea comes up, I discard the old idea and I take the new idea. So I'm really, unlike most people, I live in that space of tension, realizing every once in a while I do step over the line and then you get your fingers cut off a little bit and you're like, okay, that hurt. I shouldn't do that again. And let me try to rethink myself and rethink how I want to phrase this. But that's where I like to live. And hopefully over time, people get to know who you are and say, you know what? He's trying out an idea. He's pushing our buttons to see where this conversation is going to lead. And we understand the intentionality of all these crazy thoughts and ideas. And hopefully they're okay with that. Some people are not, obviously, and I have some haters and that's okay. How long does it take to, to get an idea out there normally? Mm, very good question. So I'm more, and I know this sounds like an oxymoron, but I'm an intuitive data analyst, if you can, if you can figure that part out. I think data only drives you so far. And if you read data with an agenda, the data will tell you whatever it wants to tell you. Two sets of, uh, two people can look at the same set of data and come up with totally opposite conclusions. So the data is just one point, but then it's intuition. It's the, the friction and just having multiple simultaneous conversations with people on multiple platforms that I start to get a sense that this works or not. And you can find out pretty quickly. Right now, depending on the size of your audience, if you go on any platform where you're really active and have a community around there, throw out an idea, throw out a grenade and see what happens. Does it make a sound? Does anyone care? Is it like a wet fart? Like who, who knows? And then they react. And so for me, I'll throw out an idea on Twitter and I can tell just by the rate of engagement that includes likes and comments, mostly comments, but I, I also can see likes as a data point. So if it hits 700, 800,000 people reacting to this thing, then I know I'm onto something. I'm not saying I have the solution, but at the beginning of the question, somebody wants to know more about this. And then do I have more to say about it? Or is this it? Am I just good for one tweet? What's really cool is if you read all the comments, the ones that are constructive, now, there's a lot of them that just say, cool, uh, that's stupid. Those are not constructive. They're just, <laughs> they're just opinions, right? Even, even nice comments are just opinions. I'm looking for, Chris, did you consider this? Or this, this idea is built on this other person who said this before this person. Or I think here's a different angle and I'm going to challenge you. That to me is valuable feedback. And I usually use that when I create the second iteration of that. I'll take that tweet and I'll jump onto another platform like Instagram. I refine the thinking. And again, I'll miss it because people will then respond one more time. But the argument is getting stronger. It's getting clear. I'm being more critical as I think. And if it hits again, I'm going to take that to LinkedIn. By the time it gets to LinkedIn, I now have the formation of what I could probably do a 30-minute talk on. And that's where I'm going to jump to YouTube. So that's kind of how I test my ideas on public. I love that. I want to talk about the growth of online education and why do you think, like obviously the future, that's the, that's the space it's playing in. But why, why do you believe that online education is going through the roof? It's going through the roof because it's been accelerated by what's happening in, in the events of uh, pen, the pandemic that we're all experiencing. And what's happened is we've realized we've become wholly dependent on a very old fashioned way of doing things. Very few industries have survived for tens, if not hundreds of years unchanged. And education is one of those things. You still go to a place surrounded by walls that's lit by electricity with it, one person reciting the same thing that they recited for the previous number of years. And it happens on a repeat cycle. It hasn't really innovated much within the classroom itself. While the entire world outside those four walls have completely changed. And if you think about this, when Apple drops the next iPhone, whatever iPhone it is, with whatever innovation they promise, 
people are clamoring to upgrade. Yet there's so many new radical ideas, but education hasn't updated like ever. And so it's primed to be disrupted. It's primed to be innovated. Uh, and here's the thing. We think about this. I was in the Philippines and I was on an education panel and one person had asked a, one, a panel of teachers a question and her response was this. It's, and she said this and she said it in earnest. She said, we as teachers cannot compete with entertainment and video games. We cannot. And she went on to talk about it and it made me upset. So when she finished saying that, I had to challenge the idea. I said, you know what? When we accept that we can't compete, we've already given up. We've already surrendered and we're waving the white flag. We're saying it's over. I said, our duty as instructors, as teachers, is to be as entertaining as video games and movies because we're fighting for that same mind share. We need to take this like a war and we need to win this war. We cannot go into accepting defeat. So we have to try new ideas. We have to be uh, we have to use new thinking uh, and teaching methodologies. We have to try to get into new pedagogical models so that we can try to bring some innovation. Why is it that we're tethered to people in a physical space? And so you're seeing that a lot of institutions, a lot of teachers have struggled mightily because they're ill-prepared and ill-equipped to start teaching online. So what they do is they take the same lesson plan and they do it over Zoom. So now it's a poor facsimile of what you would get in person because you're not getting the body language. You're not getting the energy. You can't call Mary or Bob or Sue or Kim. You just can't call on anybody and everybody's just there, you know, kind of tuning out. It's because teaching via distance space is completely different. Well, first of all, you could have multiple camera angles. You can include audio and visuals as part of your presentation. You can send prompts to people to work on while you're talking. And more importantly, you can have small group discussions in very protected spaces and breakout rooms. There's a lot of things you can do. And I'm just talking about scratching the surface on what you can do in Zoom. So what we want to do is we want to spend our time, our money, and our energy in thinking about what the 21st century classroom looks like, what it feels like, and what the experience can be like. Rather than having a mediocre teacher repeat the lessons from someone who's a subject matter expert, why not scour the planet, find the foremost authority on the subject who is the most dynamic and charismatic teacher and have them perfect a talk and teach it one time. And then scale that by distributing that in some open source network, perhaps, so that all schools can have access to the brightest mind teaching that subject. And then teachers play a different role. They play the role of facilitators helping the students to learn by observing, encouraging, and asking questions. They don't have to be the subject matter expert anymore. So that's a small innovation, but it's enough to rock the education uh, industry. I reckon there's, there's a part around, like on your content around like entertainment versus education. I think that's an interesting space. I think it's a good follow-on post talking about the online education boom and how to educators can approach i guess the new generation of teaching and stuff but how how, how hard is it but how important is it as well to try and capture that entertainment uh, the the attention knowing that we're fighting against people trying to pull it away for entertainment purposes rather than educational purposes or can you do both i think it's imperative that you have to i think accepting anything less is a cop-out that's just my opinion these are one of the things i say that get me in trouble all the time because I have friends who are educators who are in those institutions trying to do what they can. Their hands are tied. The boat moves very slowly and it doesn't realize it, but it's heading straight for an iceberg 
And for us as a small company that's very nimble, we could try and do things in ways that they can't. But if you think about it, if each school were to spend five to 10% of their operational income on an innovation lab to kind of create a um, black ops group that allows them to work independently of the school and everything else and try to create new and innovative programs and then report back to the president, the dean, whoever, and say, here are two or three things that we found. It's up to you to do what, whatever it is that you want with it or do nothing at all. And then to disrupt themselves. Most companies, healthy companies, innovative companies have a heavy amount of money spent in R&D. Where is that R&D in education? It's non-existent as far as I know. So it's just teachers teaching themselves how to teach the same way that they taught before. And to me, that's problematic. I'll give you one example of how we can innovate. Now, some of you are aware of the Mandalorian series. Uh, it was produced or the visual effects were produced by ILM in the Bay Area. And they use something called the volume. Have you heard about the volume? Do you know about no. this? Okay. The volume is an entirely new and innovative way of shooting live action that integrates a, a curved LED wall. And it's almost like a giant sphere with LED panels. Why is this innovative? It used to be that if you wanted to shoot somebody in outer space, you would shoot them on green screen and then you would composite the layers back in. The problem is green screen, it doesn't emit light. It's just to cut people out. So if um, shooting star went by the actor's face, they would have to then paint that in in post-production. But in the volume, an LED that's lit, basically particles of light, hitting the actors and the characters on set, it creates the light pattern that traces around them, therefore, A, reducing the compositing and, and retouching time, but also giving actors interactive things to work with so their performances will be better, but it gives you interactive lighting. Now, it's ILM. It's one of the biggest, most successful um, visual effects company in the world, started by George Lucas, right? Owned by Disney now, I think. Okay, that's an incredible amount of money they've spent in innovation. Well, you can take the same LED panels, which is something we're investigating right now, spend a tenth of what they spent and get a, a, a set piece that you could pretty much do anything that you want. So imagine if you're a professor and you're talking about astrophysics or you're talking about traveling into the universe or talking about subatomic particles, you're using Unreal, real-time 3D gaming engine to render in real-time an environment that you can talk about and you can walk through. So there are commercials and, and, and uh, promos that are made for like the Discovery Channel where Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about the formation of the universe and he gestures with his hand. Well, visual effects artists put that together after the fact. It takes weeks and months of effort to be able to do that. You could do that stuff in real time now with a very small team. Now, imagine if you're a seven-year-old kid thinking about the stars or science or biology, and you're seeing your professor talk about it in this way. How can you not be, in the words of the gladiator, how can you not be entertained? Especially if it's Neil deGrasse Tyson. Too. <laughs> yeah. Imagine your seven-year-old yes, kid true. seeing the stars with him, you're like... That's crazy. So do you think like that, that in terms of capturing the attention and that entertainment side, it'll just be out of this world type of thing where you'll just feel like you're in it and an immersive sort of experience of education? Yes. Yes. I think that's just one part of a multi-part equation. So you can have the most immersive visual eye-popping backgrounds that are just done to the nines. But if your teacher's boring, it's not a subject that matter expert, doesn't know how to engage and ask provocative questions, doesn't know how to teach in a way of making the complex simple, then you have 
a big budget production for nothing, right? So it's in my future, and I'm thinking this is going to happen the next year or two, the pandemic set our plans back, but we were heavily looking into investing in these walls and these systems with a staff of, of 3D artists who can, who can deal with this stuff in real time. And I just want to make a quick little point here. You remember back when James Cameron released Avatar? Uh, He was talking about and using cutting-edge state-of-the-art technology, burning hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, keeping a stage available to do some real-time motion capture and live performance. This is now being done by amateurs for $100,000 today. So in the span of a few short years, it's probably been close to 10 years, but in that time, so much innovation has happened and just the way that Moore's laws works in terms of the doubling of technological advancement, we're here now where something that was cutting edge 10 years ago, even a year and a half ago is within the grasp of mere mortals. So shouldn't schools who, who bring in hundreds of millions of dollars a year at the university level, shouldn't they spend $2 million investing in this? and recruiting and, and and then what they could do is instead of using all this real estate as i as i almost think of as prison cells why don't they convert the, those spaces into labs and living spaces and and spaces to explore and then they could also reduce tuition down and change the whole system they can change it all oh i like that well how how do you go about like staying present but living in the future thinking about all these trends and you sort of seeing things that you you're thinking and down the line how do you sort of stay all right well i'm thinking about all this future stuff we've got all this cool shit coming but we need to focus on what's going on today like is that hard for you no not at all it sounds futuristic but this is all that's being done today right now it's just not being done in the spaces that we're talking about right so the, the camera that I'm using is a four-year-old camera. It's not a brand new camera. But what happens in schools, they said, everybody go teach at home. And they give them no equipment, no training, and they don't even have a curriculum on how to teach via online. So what are people using? They're using their laptops with the crappy cameras and the ca- crappy microphones, and they're saying, go figure it out. And that's the responsibility, the beginning and the end of the responsibility of the institution. I, I would love it. And the reason why I'm so adamant, why I'm so vocal about this is because I'm not trying to hoard these ideas. I'm trying to share it with as many people who are willing to listen, who are willing to act upon this information. And I'm not trying to do it in some secretive way. Because remember, a billion people, that's a lot of people to reach. So I need to enlist and enroll other people in the same idea and the same dream. I'm willing to spend my hard-earned money, my savings to try to make this happen at the scale at which I can operate. Now, for me, it's just future-based because I don't have the amount of money that I need to do what I need to do today. But almost every school within their operational budget could do this yesterday. And in fact, uh, at my at my alma mater uh, at Art Center, they were given $5 million to create a video, video innovation room or hub or space. It's been years. And, and to date, I'm still waiting, like, when's the first piece of content going to drop? How is this space being used? So... It's not that universities don't have money. It's that they're, they're spending their money poorly and they're spending their money in ways that are ill-advised because nobody is out there thinking about the things that I'm thinking about. Now, one nice thing about where I'm, where I'm at, I was an educator. Before that, I was a professional motion graphics artist running a design firm. So I was living in that space with video and technology. This is part of my DNA. And that I'm not saying this because I'm special. I'm not special, but... I have friends who are on the edge of doing whatever is new and brilliant, working with off-the-shelf tools on, on a nickel and dime budget 
to try to produce things that I think are super innovative. I just take whatever ideas that I see and I graft them into an educational model. I want to talk about content then and how important it is. So like to try and help 1 billion people make a living doing what they love, how, like, where, where do you, where do you start and, and how important is content in all of this into what you're doing? So like for, for business growth. Yeah. You know, I have this theory. I have this theory that all companies are actually content companies. They just don't realize it yet because in the battle of brands, it's about winning the hearts and minds of your customers. It's about building an unbreakable bond with them. And the way that you do that is through media. You create content and there's some statistics. I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, so I don't know them. But when a, when a company or corporation says we do X, how likely is it that you are to trust them? But when you hear of someone that you know within your second or third tier, second or third tier circle of people that you know, and they say, we love this product, we'll teach you how to use it. Here's how we're using it. How much more likely are you to make decision to buy? So what they have is they have authority, the authority to influence your decisions and your behaviors. And so big companies need to start to realize that and either create their own content division or work with people who are already in that space and leverage their audience and expertise and work with them. In this way, I think they have a chance to build yet a different kind of relationship and a, and a different paradigm that is post-advertising. Can you expand on that? What do you mean by post-advertising? Well, advertising is also another idea that's old, that hasn't really responded to the, to the ways that we have changed. Uh, so it could be like 20, 30 years ago when a corporation told you uh, we're, we're built X tough, like we're built for tough or we try harder. But then when you go to that rental car space and you're treated like crap, okay, you're not feeling their brand ethos, but you didn't really have a platform to share it with 100,000 people. All that has changed. If you think about your purchasing decisions now, how often are you to buy something that you've never seen a commercial for or have basically no physical interaction with? And for me, that's very high. I go on Amazon. I search for a product. I trust the algorithm. I look at the reviews. I do a quick double check on YouTube to make sure um, it is what it is that I want it to be. And then I'm going to make a decision to buy. None of that is influenced by the commercials. Yet companies spend hundreds of millions of dollars every single year to try to lure me into thinking an idea. That's money that just wasted. To think about what else they could do with that money, uh, to, to me, I, I don't understand it. But what they do is they say, our competitors are doing it and our competitors' competitors are doing it. Therefore, we must do it. They're just following the rule of dogma. This is the way it is. This is the way it always will be. Uh, when I was in advertising years back, I learned a scary statistic, a number that was to me unfathomable at that time that American Express spends half a billion dollars every year in media buy. Yet, I don't think I've ever been influenced by an American Express ad. Not once. Not ever. So this is the era where we're living in relationships and that you can't hide from the truth anymore. You can pretend for a little while, but it's very difficult now. Uh, same thing goes for movies. When you go check out an aggregator like Rotten Tomatoes or a, a restaurant and you can go on Yelp and you can find out is this place any good? So no amount of advertising is going to save you. So use the money somewhere else. Now, wouldn't that restaurant benefit more from doing, say, um, weekend cooking classes where they film it and then they produce and they share that content out, out, out into the universe? 
they're not only doing something good for the community, they're, they're developing skills, but they're also creating content. So you get an idea. These people I understand, these people I like, these people I trust. Does that come down to, to brand building now? Like you talk about community and brand. Um, would love for you to unpack your thoughts around community and brand. Sure. So they're kind of related. Um, branding, I'm just going to go to Marty Neumeier's definition is the person's gut feeling about a product, service, or organization. So it's not what you say it is, it's what they say it is. And when enough people come to a similar feeling, you have a brand. And so we can't control it, but we can influence it. And we do this through impression management. Uh, and my friend, Christine Lucer, who's the doctor, like PhD doctor, she explains impression management like this. When you go on a job interview, you're trying to make an impression on your potential employer. You wear certain clothes, you sit upright, you use certain language, and you're putting together your best self. So you're trying to influence them to think you are the right person. You are the candidate for this job. Well, brands can behave that same way. So when a customer walks in the door and into your cafe, your restaurant, what kind of experience, what kind of impression are you going to make on them? Is your staff going to be hospitable? Are they courteous? Are they kind? How easy is it to navigate through your menu? And if there's a problem, how do you respond to it? Is the place clean? Are you charging a fair price? Is there transparency in where you're sourcing your ingredients from? And now you and I, we all have a lot of choice. We've had, we now have more choice than we've ever had in, in the history of mankind. And so if we don't like this, we'll order from some other place. And there are a number of options for us. So we're, we're fighting and it's, it's a war for the heart and the mind of the customer and the audience. And if you build this relationship, this emotional connection with them, one in which they feel that there's no replacement for, then you have something really special. My friend, Yo Santosa, who does a lot of branding work, she said this, she said, people don't fall in love with corporations. They fall in love with personalities. And what happens in corporations is they have freaking no personality. It goes through review board and, and then it becomes this watered down version of what everybody thinks is the least offensive. So that what they're trying to do is they're not trying to win. They're just trying not to lose. And that's a very boring game to play. It takes some guts. It takes some courage to say, you know what? We stand for something. We believe in this. And so we're willing to make some enemies to gain some fans. That's a line from SNAS, the Swedish design and advertising agency. And then, and then community is about just engaging with the building on those relationships, making feel, making people feel a part of something bigger. Is that, is that, is that fair? That's a start. I think community is a word that people use very lightly and community is uh, shared worldviews, a sense of family and belonging. And if you want to be the leader of a community, you need to empower people to be able to achieve what it is that they want in their life. Uh, some people would say that we have a decent community and, when I talk about community, I'm talking about the people who show up for us because we show up for them. We might not know each other. We might not ever speak, but they feel like we have their backs. One of the most common comments that I see on our, on our videos and our content is something like this. How did you know I needed to read this today? How did you know I wanted this video? I feel like you're speaking right to me and piercing into my soul. Of course, if multiple people are writing this, there's no way I could be doing this for every single person. But what, what I do, and we talked about this briefly before, which is I'm an intuitive analyst. I read the comments. I watch the videos. I see where it sticks. I see where we lose people. So I'm constantly in a state of responding to them all the time. So what happens is something like this. And this, I want you to think of it as a game of ping pong or tennis, right? I serve the ball to you. 
you volley it back. Depending on how you hit it back to me, I have to adjust my position, my swing, and the game goes on and on and on. The problem with traditional models of teaching or brand building or community building is we hit the ball and then we walk away. We don't care how the ball comes back or ever playing the game with them. So this is what it means to have a conversation or a dialogue with your community. So what happens? I make a video. I say something like, this is how you should price. And I think I did a good job because obviously I, I did the best job I could. But when the ball is hit back, the ball comes back and it says, uh, I can't do it in this country. This won't work for this reason. And what do you say to this? So there's three things I can respond to. So what do I do? I hit the ball back. Here's how you do it in this country. This is how it could work for you. And here's the objection. I'm going to resolve this too. And each time you hit the ball back, now there's three balls that are coming back. Guess what? Three more comments from each of the videos are going to come back. So now I have to respond nine times and this game keeps getting played. Now we're playing some infinite game back and forth. And this is how the community starts to say, my God, this is an interactive medium. It's asynchronous, but it's interactive in the way that we respond to what you say. So if you say we love these kinds of videos, we want less of this. And if enough people share that sentiment, I'm going to change it. Imagine like uh, right now we're loving watching Loki, right? On Disney Plus. Imagine if we're like, oh, they missed an opportunity. Uh, my sons and I watch it. Oh, they should have done this, dad. Imagine if next week they changed it based on our reaction. How cool would that be? Maybe a terrible TV, but you know, it'd be kind of interesting. <laughs> but how is it wrestling with some of the ideas that you might have in your head that you think might be good? And then, and then the, the community is like, nah, I don't like it. Does it hit, hit you like, fuck, I thought that was sort of, on there, does, does, is there things that surprise you that come up? All the time. I never yeah. know what's going to work. I, I want to be honest with you. I have a hunch. I have a theory. I think I say to the guys, this one's going to hit. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And I scratch my head. And I think, why didn't it hit? What is wrong? Sometimes it's because the delivery is poor. Sometimes it's because I didn't do the right research or I didn't use the right teaching method. And that's okay. Every once in a while, we have a video that is just simmering. It's not boiling over. And I think to myself, this is where my intuition kicks in. I think to myself, this is a good video. Why aren't more people watching this? And I'll tell the team, spend money. Put the money we made on something else. Put it on this video and promote this video within certain channels. And they do. And then that video starts to catch on and it starts to boil. The example is there's our most popular video, which has, I think, over 3 million views is about pricing. I talk about this Nike logo, this theoretical thing about how to price a logo. When that thing launched, I think it was a couple of months, and it got like 20, 30,000 views. It's not exactly numbers that you would go home and write about, right? You don't write to mom like, mom, I got a 30,000 view video. So I told my team, spend a couple hundred bucks on promoting this video. They had misinterpreted me. They spent a couple hundred bucks a day for many days unchecked. And eventually reached to like several thousand dollars. We're like, whoa, whoa, what are we doing? I thought we were only spending a couple hundred bucks on this. All right, oh, we'll turn it off. But in the meantime, what happened was by serving it up enough times, the right people saw it and they started to share it. They started to write blogs about it. And then we saw it go thermonuclear. And that video took off and it got into hundreds of thousands of views. And then we're like, you want to take your foot off the gas and we'll see where this thing goes. A few short years later, it's 3 million views. The cut down of the same video has now, I think, over 14 million views. And so sometimes you have an instinct you don't always give up because people don't respond to it. You just ask yourself, what can I do better? What can I do differently? How can I meet people where they're at versus where I'm at? Oh, well, I think it's a good, that's a good like follow on to the next question around how, how do you define value? So if I'm, if I'm a, 
I'm a side hustler or I'm starting my own thing up or I want to understand what price my service or product should sit at. How do you define your value? You define your value not through what you think it, it is. You define the value through what the lens of your customer or client. And so this is critical because if I make a logo, the classic example is I make a logo and it's for a small mom and pop business, a restaurant again, or it's for, for a chain of restaurants, or it's from an international food company, the same logo, the same amount of energy, creativity, the same amount of craftsmanship and care can be put into each and every one of these logos. But the value to client is drastically different. To the mom and pop business, they're like, yeah, logo, no logo. The people of this community love us. They love the food or they don't. The logo is not going to fix anything. So we're going to pay you 500 bucks for it. And you say, okay, that sounds fair. You go to a chain of restaurants where they need to create a cohesive identity. Perhaps they're thinking about selling themselves or launching a, a franchise where they let independent business owners buy into their concept. They need a lot of materials. And so they're talking about millions of dollars of revenue. So the logo might be worth twenty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to them. You go to an international food company where just printing the wrong logo will cost them hundreds of thousand dollars in reprinting, not to mention the environmental waste that they're creating. Now that logo is probably worth $100,000, $200,000. Same logo, same thinking, same creativity, vastly different price points. So the way that you price things is you measure the impact that the thing that you make is going to have on the person's business and life. In order to talk about money, you need to have a conversation. And this is the thing that creative people are afraid to have. And that's why they don't make any money. Well, I love that because you I've seen a couple of your videos and you do talk about pricing and valuing yourself a lot. Do so you think it's a confidence thing, especially when people are first starting out that they're like, well, maybe I'm not too sure. I just want to get the lowest price and get a few clients and stuff to sort of get the ball rolling. But there's other, there's better ways to do it, isn't there? Obviously. There is. And like most everything in life, there's a better way to do everything. And there's a better way to do the things I just said to do. So people in their creative journey usually start out with, I just need to find, uh, develop a skill set. I need to find some clients to test um, how market viable, if there's a good product market fit. And that's okay in the very beginning of your career. I would say the first year, take on every single job, do whatever you can and be open to all things. And just to realize you're going to be burned a couple of times. You're going to work a lot harder than you, than you should, but then you get a feel for it. And then you start to develop confidence, but confidence is not the answer because confidence does not mean knowledge. Confidence is like, I know how to do this thing. I'm very good at making this thing, but now you have to learn how to have the money conversation. It's a conversation that is difficult uh, and it's bewildering to a lot of people. And that's because oftentimes we're A, not taught how to price our work, how to value our work. And probably B, the more damaging of the two is we're taught the wrong way to talk about our work. And so in, in most design colleges, they have a professor or two who talk about pricing, how to build a successful freelance business, but they themselves do not know how to price. So not only are you learning something, but you're learning something that's exactly the opposite of what you need to learn. So some fool like myself jumps on YouTube and you watch my videos and you're like, that cannot work. That's so against everything I know about pricing. That's not fair. That's not ethical. Uh, that's some fantasy crap land that this guy's peddling. He's a snake oil salesman, a scammer. If you say so. Mm, far out. That's, that's, 
crazy shit. What about tips for people starting out? You've put out so much different content. You play in so many different spaces. If you can try and maybe I'll put you on the, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but like three, three biggest tips for people starting out. Where should people start? What should they know? Okay. Depends what you, what the goal is. If I can only give three tips, I need to know, is this a creative person? Creative person starting off. Maybe it's someone, yeah, someone a bit like they want more. They they might be in a job now and they're like, fuck, I've got these ideas. I I, I maybe need that confidence or whatever it is. But yeah, Yeah, yeah. maybe around that. I could do that. So they're a creative person and they're on staff somewhere and they're thinking, I'm tired of building someone else's dream, right? Yeah. Something like that. Okay. Yeah, I like that. So I'm going to give you the transition plan. And, and please just be very careful with the next piece of advice here. So just listen to this, process it, and kind of think about how it maps for you because this is a broad answer, okay? The beginning of this is, do you comfortably, do you feel like you could comfortably generate enough leads to augment your income at work today? If not, don't quit. This is when you go to work from your nine to five, and then you work on your side hustle from five to nine. And you really need to do this. So what does that mean? Get your Instagram account up, get your Behance page up, get your website up, make sure you've identified keywords that you want to rank high on, on Google, because that's how a lot of people are going to find you. So what I suggest is finding your three word uh, grouping. So it could be logo design Australia or Melbourne or something like that. And you just kind of work on your three words. And then when you type in those three words on Google and you see a group of people that you want to compete against, you're on the right track. If you see all kinds of random things, Google is telling you that people are not looking for this or they're looking for something else. When you figure out those three words, start to make content that answers whatever somebody might be looking for in that three word range. And within, if you're diligent about this, within three to six months, you should start ranking in the top 10 search results. Remember, that's the goal in life, be top 10. Okay, so now you have a website, you're ranking for your three keywords, things are starting to feel good. Okay, now start working on some fictitious projects because there's a good chance you're not allowed to show current projects because you could be signed to a non-disclosure agreement or non-compete clause with your company. And that's fine, that's fair. You work on spec projects and spec projects are projects you do just for yourself, for no client to demonstrate your creative muscles. And you wanna create as many of these things as possible. Now, if you were to do a rebrand on a company you admire that is universally hated, those tend to stir and capture the attention of the public versus doing some obscure brand that nobody's heard of before. The whole idea is to make it easier to find you than your competitor. And so you have to play the game of digital marketing and content creation. So if you can build up a small following, consistent proof that you know what you're doing, you're going to get leads. So these leads need to be qualified. And so in your off hours on your weekend time, uh, your time at night, you're going to follow through with some, you're going to set your price. And here's the cool part. You have a job. You have a lot of confidence to say no. Exercise your right to say no early and often so that when you start to take on work and you're going to burn the midnight oil, make it worth something for yourself to do this extra work. And over time, you're going to build up enough cash reserve that you can survive between three to four months without taking on, uh, uh, on any new client it's time to think about quitting. Let's talk about how to quit. I don't care if this is the worst place, place you've ever worked. They gave you a job. They afforded you a life. They gave you enough time and space so that you can build your second company. Always leave on good terms. I don't care how, how bad you hate it. 
tell your boss, boss, it's been a wonderful experience. I've learned a lot. I've grown tremendously. I appreciate the opportunity. I feel like now is a good time for me to set off on my own. And I thank you for the experience. You shake their hand and then you say, if there's ever work that you feel is too small or not the right fit for you, please feel free to send it to me. I'd be more than grateful. In fact, I would be willing to pay you a finder's fee for that work. You've turned a former employer to a person who's going to be a sales rep for you. Handle this like a professional. Leave the way that you would want someone to leave when they leave you. That's how you handle it. Brand, that's, that's reputation, isn't it? Reputation's everything and you don't want to burn any bridges and, and that's how you create your first clients, isn't it? You create from just coming out and that's your first one. Well, that's funny, your former employer like, can be yeah. your client and that's how yeah. I did it and they'll send you overflow work. They'll like, oh, we love Chris. We should send him X, Y, Z. We can't handle this and eventually they'll replace you but in that meantime, it's a nice soft landing versus a hard exit into the cold real world. Well, I love the way you explained, I guess, the the way that people can get out of their, their job and and into their own business, which is funny because that's sort of our experience, what happened to us. But it goes against a lot of the, some of the advice that's out there. It's like, if you want to get into this business, you've got to go all in and you've got to quit your job now and go and do this. And for, for us, we're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm going to get, I'm not going to quit. I've got to pay rent. I've got to pay, get, buy food and do all these. You've got a baby things. coming now. <laughs> baby coming. Like, I can't live that life. And I think yeah. that there's a lot of mixed information around people actually figuring out what are the steps to making this not just, yes, I can quit. I can go in all in. Yes, I can create a website. I can start a business, get a, a, a register the business, whatever, to actually having a viable, sustainable business or a sustainable career. Is that like, do you find it difficult out in the market considering there's all this other misinformation of people that it's not really helping people put them in the right place? There probably is. I don't spend any time searching out the misinformation. I'm sure there must be a lot of it out there. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm like an optimist. So I want to say that the people who are putting out information, I think in their heart, they think they're doing a lot of good. I think they know what, I think they think they know what they're doing. And so I'm going to just say this. You don't have to listen to me. Listen to whoever you want. Find someone that you trust. Find someone who theoretically has done something with their life and not talking about it just in theoretical, like academic terms. And then try what they say to do and just do do with all your might and see if it works out. And if it doesn't work out, find a different person and just keep doing that until you lock up with the right person who says what you, what you need to hear in the way that you need to hear it. And then try that out and hopefully it'll work for you. Now, obviously, if you can find that source earlier than later, you're going to suffer a little bit less and you're going to make a little bit more and you're going to feel a little bit more confident about yourself sooner. But eventually, if you play the game long enough, if you love the process and love the game itself, you'll figure out a way, either from a book, from a video, or for some, some donkey like myself. How important is loving the process and loving the game? Like, I feel like this is a world that we never really expected to enter. But now I'm like, oh, my God, the whole thing of doing all this media stuff, running a business, like, it's just, it's, it's like it's entered a new world. I didn't think I'd love it this much. And it's thanks to videos like yours. And you look at people like Gary Vee and... Well, going through school, I never thought there was this sort of pathway for, for me, you know, growing up in Melbourne, Australia. But now, like videos like yours and the online education, it really inspires a lot of people. What are, what are some of the changes you've seen over time since when you first started doing this to, to now? Well, I started in 1995. I'm almost 50 years old. I like to tell people that not because I like being old, but I've been running a business longer than they've been alive. So I, I tell you that I've gone through a lot of different things and the industry has turned upside down several times over and so don't get comfortable 
you know, there's this video that I saw, like when I was teaching in my early days, I'm talking about like uh, early 2000s, there's this video that said, you know, everything is changing. And the point that I was trying to make was this, they said that there are more honor students in India than there are students in America. And that was just like, what? And they, and another thing that they said was everything you've learned in school was already out of date the day that it was written in a book. And you, you got to let that sink in. So school is not the, the ending of your education. It's the beginning of your education. It's just a lifelong school that you're going to be a part of. So you need to kind of stay aware of what's going on. So uh, could I have anticipated any of this? No. I was the person who's sitting there saying in 2014, stupid YouTube, like who's doing anything on YouTube? Now I'm like neck deep in YouTube, talking about YouTube all day long. It's one of the ways I make a living doing what I, what I love and how I'm able to help people. And so I think you just need to be aware of what's going on and be very um, malleable and be open to change. Now, should you love the game? Should you love the process? Should you love the pursuit? Absolutely. Let's just say... Let's say you like playing basketball. I want to say football, but football means different things to, to people. But basketball, I think there's one definition of basketball. So in junior high, you love basketball. In high school, you love basketball. Now, if you thought to yourself, I'm not going to play basketball. I'm going to give up basketball if I can't be in the NBA. If I can't be a starter in the NBA, I'm not going to love basketball anymore. The person who thinks like that, in my opinion, is a person who's only going to play for the results and not because they love the game. And I think even if you never make the NBA, you could still love playing basketball. You can still do it with your friends. You can, you can spend time with your children doing this, and you could do it all your life. And I think those people who have that kind of mentality that want to make incremental improvement day after day, year after year, and who love the game, the game of design, the game of business, the game of marketing, the game of content creation, you will succeed where the other ones will fail because they never learn to love the game. And that's it. Like, if you want to be rich in your life, do not pursue money. Pursue something that you want to get really good at, that you're willing to invest your time, money, and energy into. And if you do a good enough job, the money will come. So money isn't the pursuit. The money is the byproduct of what it is that you pursue. And the more that you can pursue that in ways that are different and better than everyone else, and that's going to be the differentiator. Love that. I don't know if you've seen this, but this is a brand coming out of Australia called Heaps Normal. It's a non-alcoholic beer. Um, they're the partners of our show. And the question we ask our guests is around, what's the thing that you turn to when you need your energy, um, you need some energy back in your life, you need your batteries recharged? What's your version of Heaps Normal? Mm, very good question. Uh, I'm an introvert. So doing interviews like this is very tiring for me. Uh, so what I do is when I feel tired, I learn to listen to my body. I take a nap. And if I'm feeling sluggish, I work out. So your body tells you what it is that you need to do. So if you just learn to tune into your body and listen to it, you would do much better. So in our office, when we were doing client service work, we built napping areas so that, you know what, if you're tired, just go take a nap. We don't even care. Work when you, when you feel productive. Sitting there pretending to work while your brain is mush isn't helping you. It's not helping me. And so go do what you need to do. And so we, we try to hire people who are honest, who are sincere, who have integrity, and who can operate at a level of autonomy that they don't want to be checked in on. And they don't need it. And that's who thrives at our company. So for me, it's as simple as napping. And sometimes when I feel intellectually drained, I read a book, I watch a video, I do some drawings. And when I say read a book, 
I could read a, uh, some nonfiction book on marketing. I could read a comic book. It doesn't matter to me. Those things stimulate my mind. And I also remember that boredom is the precursor to creativity and invention. And so we need states of boredom in our lives. You can't run a thousand percent all the time and come up with new and innovative ideas. Most of us cannot do that. Well, talk about autonomy and like when you're hiring the new people on board, like do you, you said you don't talk to them that much. They sort of do their own thing. Like how important is the hiring process then to make sure you get the right people? Is that the, the hardest part then to set up the systems? It's critical. It is critical yeah. to everything. And we don't do a great job sometimes and we pay the price for it. We have people who don't pull their weight. We have people who then create toxic energy in the work environment. And when, when, when Sally's sitting there busting her hump and she sees Peter sitting there, not doing anything, getting away with it, flying under the radar. As diligent as Sally is, eventually Sally's going to say, why am I working so hard when Peter's barely doing anything and he's not fired? So then Sally starts to change. And so that expression, a rotten apple can spoil a bunch. You have to be mindful of that. And so as I continue to grow and evolve, our company changes. So we need to hire differently. And now more so than ever, when everybody's working remotely and they're, they're, they're given uh, very loose and open creative briefs and deadlines. We need people who are super autonomous, who are self-motivated, who are driven, who love to learn and have a good sense of how to manage their time. These things are very important. So we've been in many states of our company and our philosophy. So we have yet to adapt to the latest one where we're at. So we, we probably need to make some changes. Well, Chris, thank you so much for jumping on and having a chat with us in, which is our morning, your afternoon. So uh, unreal chat. Can't wait to release this. I think it's going to provide a lot of value to a lot of people. So thanks for your time. Thank you guys. It was a fun interview. I'll give you the hot tip, Al Bradford. You were pumped leading into this chat. Like absolutely. I haven't seen your fanboy that much recently, but it's, it's good to see if you still fanboy that much. Yeah. Well, this was one of the ones where I was like, as if, as if we're going to speak to a cat like this, because honestly, like, the space that we're playing in the things that we're passionate and, and enthusiastic and keen as about learning, like he's, he's in that same space and he's taught me, I know me personally so much, you know, in terms of how to do things. It's like, it's what they, what they say, but it's also what they do as well. So you just watch what he does and how he does it and how he speaks about himself and how he markets himself. And I mean, what an There's amazing guy. If you're, if you're interested in starting your own business, or I think the context that we put in there around the question around how do you, how do you make it, how do you jump ship and start your own thing and price yourself up and understand how do I run my own business? What value do I have? Crazy, crazy information. If you're new to the pod, hey, we drop guest pods every Monday and every Thursday. Snacks pods, they come at you hot. Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, deep dive section where we go in people opinions topics we explore different things and stuff you know we do that every friday on a, on a fortnight fortnightly basis so we'll love you and leave you and we'll see you again tomorrow uh, you wrap that up very nicely rob um, that's 10 out of 10 for you <laughs>